Thanks, Rick, and, uh, and thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, it turns out it wasn't planned this way, but it's a, uh, a really good day to talk about the war in Iraq. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the president's supposed to give a speech tonight and outline um, a major escalation, surge, whatever you want to call it, the addition of some 20,000 troops, which will certainly change the equation on the ground um, for better or for worse, but it'll certainly change it. Uh, more troops mean more support. Uh, more support means more protection for that support. More people on the roads and convoys. Uh, it just changes the whole mix. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's actually a good day to, to remind us of how we got to this point. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the war in Iraq isn't going to go away anytime soon. This ought to be a, a very, very interesting, um, in the short run at least, uh, interesting time in Iraq. Lots of changes. Uh, since I've been here at the Mershon Center working on this book, a lot of what I've been um, doing, in, in essence, has been looking at how we uh, interpret, document, and uh, remember events, pivotal events. Uh, and I'm always kind of kept on, on my mission by my uh, four-year-old stepdaughter uh, and the questions she asks and the things that she picks up from the news and whatnot. And, um, about two months ago, uh, she cuddled up next to me and she told me uh, that she wanted to tell me everything she had learned about Thanksgiving in her preschool class. And she said, uh, especially about the American Indians, and she said, uh, we wiped them out. She said, they only had bows and arrows, we had guns, so we win. And uh, it was an adorable presentation, uh, uh, but the story was obviously uh, troublesome. But I think that's how we boil down a lot, of, a lot of other pivotal events. One example in the Iraq War is um, the day the statue fell. That's always interpreted as the, uh, the day the regime fell, as if it happened all in, in one day in a couple hours. Uh, there's a lot more to that story. The other, I think, is Fallujah, which is a major turning point in the war, and uh, the first battle and the second battle. And, um, and so I'll, I'll talk some about that. Um, on March 31st, 2004, four American security contractors uh, drove into Fallujah without a military escort. They were ambushed and killed. And a mob of Iraqi men and boys uh, descended on them, burned them, uh, dragged their, their charred corpses into the streets, tore them apart with shovels and sticks, dragged them behind vehicles, and eventually hung two of them from a bridge over the Euphrates River like pinatas screaming death to America and a bunch of other things. There were no U.S. forces in the city at the time. Uh, and they didn't send any military response in at the time because they feared casualties on the scale of uh, Black Hawk Down incident in, in Somalia. They, they figured it was a frenzy and a U.S. troop could get uh, uh, pinned down or wounded or killed and a lot of civilians would die. Nobody wanted that. We remember those images. They were shocking images. It was something new. It tapped into a collective national nightmare, uh, that of, of the events of Somalia in 1993 where U.S. troops were, uh, were killed and carried through the streets. Um, until that time, the leaders had said our military mission in Iraq was one of mopping up, uh, mopping up dead-enders. And the growing violence of the insurgency kind of happened in small incidents. 
And it happened in our peripheral vision. And I think the, the events in Fallujah, and particularly those images, brought it into a very, very sharp focus. And the war had not been in a sharp focus like that since the invasion. Um, the March 31st killings were largely portrayed as a provocation, in a, a, an attack without provocation in a city without history on civilians. And whenever you say civilians, their innocence is always implied. It was seen as shocking proof of the evil nature of the enemy we face, answering for a lot of people the question, why we fight. Um, and it was also an audacious challenge to American authority in Iraq and the Iraqi authority. You have to remember it was three months before we were supposed to turn Iraq over to the Iraqis, and that was our exit strategy. Uh, uh, when they stand up, we stand down, and we were, we were getting out. Uh, Dan Sr., a spokesman for the occupation, said, Yesterday's events in Fallujah are a dramatic example of the ongoing struggle between human dignity and barbarism. The acts we, we have seen were despicable and inexcusable. They violate the tenets of all religions, Islam included, as well as the foundations of civilized society. Their deaths will not go unpunished. They have not died in vain. In those terms, in that context, it, was, it warranted a swift and immediate military response. Um, General Kimmett, the military spokesman at the time, said exactly that. Coalition forces will respond, he said. They will be in that city. It will be at a time and a place of our choosing. It will be methodical, it will be precise, and it will be overwhelming. Now, 20,000 Marines from Camp Pendleton had just arrived in Al-Anbar province, the province west of Baghdad, large tribal uh, desert area, to take over for units of the 82nd Airborne, who had been there since the previous September. Uh, Two battalions, about 2,000 Marines, and about 2,000 recently trained Iraqi forces were ordered to set a cordon around the city and not let any military-age males in or out and conduct surgical strikes into the city to capture or kill the people who did the March 31st killings and then take out other known insurgent targets. Uh, it didn't go according to plan. Almost immediately when they got to, the, to set the cordon, Marines were killed and wounded, and Marine, other Marines had to go in on an offensive operation to uh, secure uh, the areas where those Marines were killed and wounded. The Iraqi forces, almost to the man, almost 2,000 of the Iraqi soldiers deserted immediately, um, setting back the entire training mission in Iraq. Uh, the Marines, uh, conventional military logic, con conventional, the logic of conventional military operations kind of took over where it's always escalating force. You hit a, a sniper with a, uh, a, a Hellfire missile from a helicopter, and you hit a, an enemy squad with a 500-pound with a bomb, and it just got, it escalated very rapidly. By the end of the first week, the director of the Fallujah Hospital said 600 people, 600 civilians had been killed. And uh, the military, of course, had no way to, to uh, substantiate or, or, or confront those facts. Uh, they said a 1,000 were wounded. Eventually, the political cost became so high, the world was watching, and uh, the Marines were ordered to stand down and pull back. Uh, at the end of the third week, an unprecedented deal was struck with former Saddam generals in which uh, the, the generals got um, about a 1,000 former Iraqi troops and promised to provide security in Fallujah, restore order, and to bring the coalition forces, the killers of the March 34, of the contractors, uh, they did neither. And in essence, what they did over the summer was turn Fallujah over to the insurgents, and Fallujah became an insurgent citadel. 
it became a shop of horrors. It was where you saw the, the tapes from those beheadings in the summer of 2003. It was a bomb factory. It was a training ground for uh, Iraqi and foreign, foreign fighters. Um, and it was run by our, our number one stated enemy, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Um, the Marines pull out at, in uh, early May, late April, early May 2004. It was seen as a humiliation. It was seen as a defeat. It was seen as a sign of weakness. And as the Marines pulled out, the first images from Abu Ghraib, the Abu Ghraib scandal, were released. And in that context, it, it, was, uh, it just added insult to injury. It was a low point for the coalition and a very high point for the insurgency, perhaps the, the highest. Uh, the Marines saw it as a betrayal. They didn't want the fight, they said. They had plans for rapid reconstruction and to win hearts and minds. Uh, they had a plan for that, but, but uh, much later. When the top Marine general, General James Conway, left at the end of the summer, he, he expressed the Marines' thoughts. He said, we follow orders. We had our say and we understood rationale. We saluted smartly and we went about the attack. When you order elements of a Marine division to attack a city, you really need to understand what the consequences of that are going to be and perhaps not vacillate in the middle of something like that. Once you commit, you've got to stay committed. The general's analysis, and I, I would say the general analysis in military circles then and now, is that the Marines were not allowed to do what they do best. They were not allowed to win. They were not allowed to take the city by overwhelming force. Um, and that's best expressed expressed in a, uh, a political cartoon by Mike Shelton that appeared at the time at, at the end of April, I believe, maybe early, or maybe the end of May, actually. And it shows the Marine mascot, a, uh, a bulldog, just about to bite into a map of Fallujah or a rag that has Fallujah on it. And, but just as he's about to do it, he's yanked back by a leash that says the White House. And in a thought bubble above the dog, it says, uh, ah, this reminds me of Vietnam. And uh, that's been pretty much the general analysis of, of how, how Fallujah went off. Uh, in November, things got so bad in Fallujah, in November the Marines got kind of a redemption. They, they were able to go back in. 10,000 Army soldiers, Marines, and uh, several thousand Iraqi counterparts went into Fallujah. They let everyone who wanted to leave leave, and then they went in and, and got the, the diehard fighters. They basically t tore the city up. Uh, killed, they estimate, around 2,000 insurgents. But they pretty much destroyed the city with everybody watching. And uh, to use a, a tried allusion to Vietnam, they destroyed a city to save it. Lieutenant General John Sattler, the commander of that, that operation, um, he said at the time that it was a strategic success, one of the, the first major strategic successes since the invasion, because they had broken the back of the insurgency. But when the insurgency popped up in cities like Ramadi and Qaim and, and all over Iraq, Mosul and Talafar, uh, I had a taped interview with him in late 2005 where he said, I was wrong. We underestimated the insurgency. And we played whack-a-mole uh, with the insurgency over the next year. Um, He also said that the first battle of Fallujah had made that second battle of Fallujah necessary. It had created the conditions for that. And he left it for me to, to draw conclusions on what was achieved at all. And that was pretty much the end of our interview. Uh, why is Fallujah important and why do I think it's worth another look? The, it was a major turning point just by the nature, just by the fact that it put major combat operations back on the table for the first time since the invasion. And it emboldened and catalyzed the insurgency. 
It jeopardized our exit strategy at the time and almost derailed the June 30th handover because members of the Iraqi interim government resigned over the first battle of Fallujah. It demonstrated the limits to American military power in Iraq um, and by extrapolation elsewhere because political considerations, the the, uh, storm of controversy over that, the civilian casualties brought the military operation to a halt uh, and, and was seen as a failure. It brought a storm of condemnation on coalition forces from around, from in, in Iraq and around the world, pushed a lot of people off the fence. Uh, it put a bright light of scrutiny on the Iraq war, which the coalition didn't want at the time, but it also pr- made Fallujah into kind of a stage. And in a counterinsurgency, moral victories are everything. And the insurgents kind of had a stage where they could show the world what American would, how far America would, would go. Um, by all accounts, it was a fight that the Marines did not want, but which they proved ready and willing to do once they were ordered to do so. Uh, according to the regimental commander at the time, he said, I was just waiting for word to do it. But the military actions of the first Battle of Fallujah and the second Battle of Fallujah uh, continue to be studied only for tactical lessons. They're, they're rarely ever looked at for those strategic lessons and what effect it had on the war, what the purpose and meaning was. And it's picked apart for tactical lessons on room clearing techniques, uh, how to use close air support, how to incorporate tanks with infantry in a city street. Um, it's hollowed ground for the Marine Corps. They shed Marine blood. Uh, the brave acts of the Marines fighting for the guy on the left and the guy on the right, uh, you know, it, it puts it up, puts Fallujah with, uh, since there's no other major uh, definitive battles in Iraq, it, it put Fallujah up there with Way City in Vietnam, Cho Sinh in, in Korea, and Iwo Jima in World War II. It's talked about in those terms. Being West, the author of the only book-length treatment of the first battle of Fallujah that I know of, No True Glory, uh, the former Marine, former uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense, he said the singular lesson of Fallujah is clear. When you send our soldiers into battle, let them finish the fight. American soldiers are not political bargaining chips. They fight for one another, for winning the battle, and for their country's cause. Bing West's observances, which are also echoed in all the Marines' internal literature on this, uh, on this conflict, uh, is ironic because at the same time, the, Marine, at the same Marine generals who criticized the White House for... Uh, using them as a strong arm and then tying it behind their back, um, had gone to Iraq in, in 2004 under the banner of fighting a small war, a counterinsurgency. In a small war, according to the Marines' own doctrine, force and therefore American soldiers and Marines are exactly what Bing West says they're not. They're political bargaining chips. In fact, the small wars, uh, the small wars that... that uh, that doctrine came out of, uh, which were marine occupations in Central America and the Caribbean in the early 20th century. Uh, the Marines at that time were called the State Department troops. They were they were meant to turn the screw and, and to do jobs for the State Department political. Uh, in a small war, and I'll get to more of that in a minute, the Marines are used to achieve limited political objectives. The Marines' own small wars manual, which is that doctrine that came out of those, those occupations, uh, the, the catchwords are restraint, compassion, and a basic concept is that you can win battles but lose the war. But I found that you can't talk about Fallujah and ask, question, ask the strategic questions and, and questions about meanings and, uh, and impressions and opinions and stuff like that and, and the purpose of it without offending marine sensibilities. Uh, just to ask those kinds of questions implies imperfection and you risk demeaning the valor and the heroism of individual marines. 
you risk diminishing the glory and the proud traditions of marine units. Uh, so it's really hard, especially as these, mar- these same units, these same Marines are going out for their third and fourth tours. It's really hard to talk about that. This outcome, uh, what, what, we don't really learn anything, though, from that. What we have uh, are tactical lessons drawn, and because they're used in the field almost immediately, they're, they're incorporated into training and whatnot, uh, but we don't learn big lessons from it. And we end up with sweeping accounts, like, uh, like the, the one I pointed out, where every action is deliberate and every enemy is a demon and uh, every Marine is a hero. And I just don't believe we, we learn a whole lot from that. It tells us what we want to hear. Um, it's only having that is dangerous, I believe. Uh, it's, it's intellectually dishonest, and it, uh, it uh, fosters a culture of combat for combat's sake. It, it fosters a culture where we glorify combat. Uh, fighting is better than not fighting. Not fighting is, uh, is doing nothing, in other words. And I think that's a culture very much alive in the Marine Corps, almost has to be. And it's alive in our society, and it's how we interpret events. But in a counterinsurgency, which uh, many analysts think is going to be our way of war for a long time, it's counterproductive. So I believe that um, that analysis is, is um, um, damaging. Um, let's see. Sorry. Um, on March 31st, let's see, the, uh, th- that's about the end of my analysis, okay? The rest of it is all first person. I'm telling you this, and I think there's more to the story because I was a witness, and that's what I'm doing here at the Mershon Center is I'm writing a book as a witness to these events and telling it through the Marines' own words and actions as they interpreted these events. Uh, there's more to the story, and therefore there's more to be learned. On March 31st, I was having lunch with the Marine unit that was directly responsible for Fallujah, we were about two miles away from where those contractors were killed. I found out exactly the way they did, eating lunch in a mess hall, uh, twice the size of this, and we saw it on a big screen TV. We knew there was something that happened that morning. Some soldiers were killed nearby that morning, and everybody was kind of tense, and we saw it first from an observer report on CNN, I think. I think it was CNN or Fox. Um, I stayed with that Marine unit through the fighting, reported alongside the Marines from a mortar pit uh, fighting positions, and then when they moved into the city, I went with them and stayed in a house, which was basically the line of houses that they took over from the Iraqis uh, was a front line and created this almost trench warfare, several blocks of no man's land between us and the insurgents where there were daily attacks. And I covered it until the Fallujah Brigade took over in uh, early May. Uh, just from that experience, I think I would have a lot to write about. But what I found really interesting was, was how the Marines got into that situation in the beginning. It was the second of three tours, as Rick said, for the North County Times, which is a paper that covers the suburban communities right around Camp Pendleton. And we go where the Marines go. They're our community. We report on them, do their Marine Corps birthday, all the homecomings and departures. We go to war. Uh, Hayne Palmer, the photographer, the guy who took all these pictures with the exception of the March 31st uh, picture you saw at the very beginning and and two more that are in here later, um, we were a team the entire time. Uh, at the time, I was a little bit frustrated because it provided me a, like a limited and parochial view. I was getting kind of gee whiz comments from Marines and seeing this stuff on a day-to-day basis. I was seeing the trees and sometimes couldn't see the forest. And you've got the New York Times and Washington Post and others that are writing these articles on a big picture. And a little, sometimes it was frustrating to me. 
Now, afterwards, I see all of the things that I found out and how valuable the trees are to understanding the forest. And, uh, and that's what I'm, I'm doing in my work right now. Um, a small war that wasn't, how the U.S. Marines tripped into the first battle of Fallujah. It's the title of the talk. I use the verb trip for a couple reasons. Hopefully, and I think I succeeded, uh, I lured a couple members of the military in here who could maybe tell me uh, the version of events from their, from their perspective, and hopefully we get to that in the questions. Uh, but I also did it because it's a very accurate word, I think. Trip means it's, it's an accident. By nature, it's an accident. And I believe the Marines tripped into Fallujah. They did not want that fight, and they ended up uh, uh, having to, to fight it. But it also implies carelessness or, or recklessness, and it can also imply malice by another party, as in the Marines were tripped into Fallujah. And I think the, the last two of those are true, reckless and, and they were tripped. Reckless, uh, by that I mean that the Marines had an over, uh, overestimation of their own success in southern Iraq after the invasion, when they took over five Shiite provinces. They had an overestimation of their own culture of small wars, which are those three occupations I mentioned from the early, early 20th century. They underestimated the enemy, and, and I've talked to lots of Marines generals, and they're the first ones to say this. They underestimated the enemy situation, which was also developing and evolving at the time very rapidly. And um, they underestimated the job that the Army had done there and what they could learn from the Army uh, soldiers that had been there. They were tripped into Fallujah in the, in the uh, respect that it was exactly what the insurgents wanted, was that kind of a def, uh, big conflict that everybody would be watching. General James Mattis, you'll hear a lot about him, he was the division commander, the first Marine division commander of the Marines who went there. He said, he wrote right when they were ordered to go into Fallujah, he said, we must avoid turning more young men into terrorists. We will also avoid doing what the insurgents, terrorists, and foreign fighters, and the Arab street all expect, and that is the thoughtless application of excessive force as if to strike out in retribution for the murders. Um, in short, I, I'm, like I said, I'm here as a witness. I'm a journalist. Uh, but I understand that these, these talks a lot in an academic setting, you come up with uh, policy prescriptions and, and reach certain conclusions. Uh, if I had a thesis to, to what I'm doing on Fallujah, I would say that in 2004, when the Marines returned to Iraq for their second tour and took over in Fallujah, the, the Marines, as a force, remained a blunt instrument that imagined itself to be a scalpel, and I'll explain that. Uh, I'm doing this in the sense of a case study. I was with the Marines. I can't write definitively about the Army except their experience right there in Fallujah. Um, but the military, the Marines, no more or less than the Army, they weren't prepared uh, or expecting a, a guerrilla war in the, in the first two years, and they had to learn things the hard way. What's unique about the Marine Corps, though, is that they claim that they were prepared based on recent experience in southern Iraq and by their own culture and tradition of fighting small wars. When that proved hollow, uh, they resorted to what they knew best, which is conventional force to overwhelm the enemy. In their words, locate, close with, and kill the enemy. Uh, how did this happen? Let me start with the invasion. When, when the troops massed in Kuwait before the invasion, uh, they were all issued this manual. It's 405 pages, and it goes through play by play what their enemy is capable of. It describes every single weapon in their arsenal. It describes every single move. Actually, it looks like a football diagram on how the Iraqis would fight. In 405 pages, there's one paragraph in here that I, I've been able to find 
that says anything about irregular uh, or guerrilla forces, uh, unconventional forces. But from the very beginning, that's what the Marines faced. That's what the Army faced in Iraq. The very first coalition casualty in Iraq, the very first Marine to die, was uh, Lieutenant Shane Childers. He was killed the first morning of the war, not during a battle against Iraqi troops. He was killed in a L.A.-style drive-by shooting by men dressed in Arab civilian clothes, riding in the back of a Toyota pickup when he and his men were collecting themselves after a battle and getting ready to leave. He was gunned down. And that's been the MO ever since. So from the very beginning, from the very get-go, that, that was the, the MO. Uh, in Baghdad, when the Marines got into Baghdad, like I said, we stayed, we stayed in Baghdad long enough to see the very beginnings of the insurgency. Uh, the Marines were lamented the fact that they were not prepared to quell civil strife, kickstart services, stop the looting, or provide security. And to watch them was to know that they, they didn't have the training or experience. They were never, they were never trained to, to be those kind of troops. They kept referring to, well, when the Army gets here, um, they had to improvise and learn on the spot, and that is the best uh, thing about the Marine Corps, a small, flexible force. They, they value their ability to learn on the fly, and, and they did, and they did what they could. Um, in southern Iraq, right after the invasion on Easter Sunday, they were pulled back to five southern provinces, and they were given the task of, of uh, an occupation there in a very, very permissive military environment. The Shiites had everything to gain from the fall of the regime. And they, it was kind of a situation where you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. The Marines were able to do um, everything that coalition forces wish they could do ever since, which is reopen schools, uh, uh, start local institutions, get things up and running, train police. The Marines were able to take off their helmets, take off their body armor, walk around uh, the streets making friends, basically. Um, it was a very, very permissive environment. Um, the Marine commanders at the time said thieves and smuggling were their biggest challenges. And that the General Conway, again, the, the main Marine commander, he said, when they said the war was over, we immediately started focusing on the kids in schools and playing soccer and doing things that create goodwill and good relationships. But in contrast, the Army and the Sunni areas in the cent center and west of the country were facing a, a growing insurgency. Uh, and John Abizaid in July contradicted the Pentagon and the White House's rosy assessments, and he said the soldiers faced a classic guerrilla-type campaign in Iraq. It's low-intensity of conflict in our doctrinal terms, he said, but it's war, however you want to describe it. When the Marines returned home in September, uh, their most recent experience was that soft occupation in, in southern Iraq, and the Marines and their leaders were quick to hold up their experience in which not one single Marine died that summer uh, by uh, in action, killed in action. They were able to hold that up to the casualties the Army was experiencing. And the general feeling in the community around Camp Pendleton was the Army's botching the job. But the Marines are done. I mean, it was like a situation like that. Um, but it was an illusion in a lot of respects. It, it, during that benevolent occupation, uh, the, the Shiites were developing militias. Muqtad al-Sadr extended his base from Sodom City to the south, all the way to Najaf, Nazaria, Kut, all over the place. Uh, the Shiite political project was consolidating. Um, so it, it was kind of an illusion. The Marines took a lot of credit for that, and local, local sentiment was that, you know, look, the Army's dropping the ball. Um, 
the first point I want to make is that I believe the way the Marines both interpreted and then represented the relative calm in the South, their success in the South, uh, led to an overestimation of their own accomplishments and capabilities there. And it was an attitude that they later carried to Fallujah. Uh, the growing insurgency in Iraq seemed worlds away from Camp Pendleton. And in late October, after the Marines had gone on their leave, had their memorial services, uh, received their awards and all of that, the city of Oceanside treated them to a massive military parade, classic ticker tape parade, heroes, wars over with. 10,000 Marines walked down Coast Highway in, in camp, in, uh, right near Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, about 50,000 uh, fans, and then they treated them to a huge barbecue afterwards. A week later, the Marines were told they were going back to Iraq. The instant uh, 40,000 Marines were ordered in two shifts, seven months each, to go take over an Al Anbar, which included Fallujah, Ramadi, all the way out to the Syrian, Jordanian, and Saudi borders. This was the roughest country the army was calling it the wild, wild west of Iraq. The instant reaction in Camp Pendleton was disbelief and <coughs> anger and resentment. The army's dropping the ball, and now we have to go pick it up. That was the, that was the story. The brass were faced with channeling those feelings and transforming a force that was a mechanized force that charged across the desert, skipping cities in a, in a maneuver warfare strategy to take Baghdad, had to transform that force into a nuanced force that could fight a counterinsurgency, a small war. So they adopted a new narrative, uh, rather an old narrative, that of the small wars the occupations of, of uh, the early 20th century in Nicaragua, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic. Uh, the Marine Brass talked a lot about that immediately. Uh, as their narrative changed, they evoked the heroes of those wars. Chesty Puller, Smedley Butler, John Lejeune, the namesake of Camp Lejeune, Joseph Pendleton, the namesake of Camp Pendleton. They, f they turned the popular Marine image on its head. Uh, Marines are normally known as the shock troops. They're the ones who storm the beaches and, and uh, bust down doors and then go home. Uh, you know, they're the strong arm, the hammer. Uh, the brass said, wait a minute. Those are actually, those frontal beach assaults that you know from, from uh, the movies, those are actually anachronisms. Those are actually anomalies. Those are actually the exception. The Marines are actually more talented and have a longer tradition of fighting small wars of pacification. And they pointed to these, these uh, occupations in the early 20th century. Uh, and uh, we all kind of just adopted the, the terms. The small wars man they pointed to the small wars manual, their doctrine uh, that was derived from that, as proof that they could do it. Suddenly it was like rediscovered. This thing had not been republished until the late 90s. It was almost forgotten, barely referred to in Vietnam. And it was suddenly rediscovered as their Bible all along. Um, they were counterinsurgency experts. But I, I argue that the Marines at the time still saw themselves as the shock troops, just like we did. At the time, they didn't know or think much about small wars. I got a sense of that from my own reporting, from talking to Marines on an everyday basis as the reporter around Camp Pendleton. The Marines who had just returned from, from uh, the invasion and that soft occupation in the South, uh, they didn't talk about the occupation in the South. They talked about the war. The real war was, was combat, was what Marines did best. The other stuff was like this purgatory that was between real war and coming home. And it's a paradox. In an all-volunteer Army or Marine Corps, you've got guys who sign up to be the first to fight. These are guys who want to get in the fight. That culture is reinforced in the Marine Corps. Um, and there's perhaps nothing more unnatural for a Marine than sitting still, making peace, or walking away from a fight once it's been picked. Uh, and those are things that small wars demand. Um, 
So I argue that in, in that time, in 2003, early 2004, uh, it wasn't really part of Marine culture. It was part of their past, but it was not part of their culture. A description of the Marines' warrior culture was put to me by a public affairs officer shortly after the first Battle of Fallujah, and, uh, or f- shortly after the invasion. And this is a guy responsible for the message and the, the uh, uh, public view of the Marine Corps. And he said, the Army are a bunch of wimps. Let us go in there and clean house. Everybody knows a Marine wants to be the first on his block to get a confirmed kill. This is the Marine Corps of the Sands of Iwo Jima. Uh, this is the Marine Corps of Full Metal Jacket. Uh, breaks down doors and goes home. The Marines demonstrated how they viewed themselves in 2003 uh, when I was out there reporting on them when, when uh, order broke down in Baghdad. And this is a cover. I don't know how well you can see this, but this is a cover of the book we did when we got back. It's mostly Haynes' photos. But that Marine on the, on the cover there uh, has just this, this straight face. And it's like disbelief. It's like, now what? And that was the face that the Marines wore uh, after the fighting was done in Baghdad. It was uh, uh, disillusion. It was what's uh, what's next. Uh, we're not we're not ready for this. Um, people described it as a Mona Lisa smile. I would agree. Uh, as as Marines were watching the looting, uh, I got tons of comments, and a lot of them are in the book uh, of their reaction to it. And this, this one last corporal says, "I didn't think it would be anything like this. This is just insanity. Imagine you go to war and you end up being riot police. It's wild." These Marines were never told that they were part of a proud tradition of Marine uh, small wars because policing, quelling civil unrest, providing services, creating jobs, these are the basic activities of a small war. As they say, these Marines didn't get the memo. Uh, Not their fault. It just wasn't part of the culture. Another young sergeant expressed his frustrations to me when uh, resentment grew in Baghdad, and he said, I don't blame them. I mean, we get tired of it. Where's the electricity? Where's the water? What are you going to do about the looting? You go in and you take down a system. You better have the assets there to take care of what happens next. We're not the right people for that. We're not the right people for that, okay? That's how they thought of themselves. Um, Navy corpsmen complained that they were treating more Iraqis than Marines because it wasn't what they expected. A chaplain told me he was bored because his men weren't coming to him for uh, spiritual reassurance because they weren't facing major combat. A young Marine lamented to me that he he was going to have to go home without a notch on his K-bar knife, meaning that he had killed somebody. Uh, there was a, a, a culture there that wasn't, uh, wasn't about uh, small wars. So in the summer of 2003, the Marines still imagined themselves as the shock troops and want to break down the doors and go home. The small wars tradition was locked away in a library somewhere at Quantico, but was not part of the Marine Corps culture, any more than it was six months later when the Marines went to Fallujah. The Marines as a force remained a blunt instrument that imagined itself to be a scalpel. General James Mattis, uh, the guy, I've mentioned him several times, He's really one of the most progressive leaders in the Marine Corps and the military. And he's said some pretty wild things that have got him in trouble, like it's fun to shoot some people and stuff like that, uh, if you remember that flap. But he, he also hammers home small wars themes like restraint, compassion, do the right thing. His motto is, is first do no harm, the physician's motto. Uh, the Marines are uh, no worse enemy, no, no better friend, no worse enemy than a U.S. Marine. Um, when, when the... Uh, Marines were tasked to go back to Iraq in 2004. He wrote to them, and he said, we're going back into the brawl. Uh, When it's time to move the the piano, Marines don't pick up the piano bench. We move the piano. So this is the right place for the Marines in this fight, where we can carry on the legacy of Chesty Puller in the Banana Wars and the same, Chesty Puller in the Banana Wars in the same sort of complex environment that he knew in his early years. 
Shoulder to shoulder with our comrades in the army, coalition forces, and maturing Iraqi security forces, we are going to destroy the enemy with precise firepower while diminishing the conditions that create adversarial relationships between us and the Iraqi people. This is going to be hard, dangerous work. It's going to require patient, persistent presence. The Marines, in other words, will do the heavy lifting and leave the minor details to some other uh, chumps, mainly the Army. Uh, but also, uh, we're not going to create a, a situations that alienate the Iraqi people. It was, it, was, it was a contradiction. He kind of embodies that, uh, that contradiction, that warrior culture, but also the need to do small wars. Uh, the Marines prepared for, for SASO, Security and Stabilization Ops. They only had three months, mind you, to, to, to do this and to uh, fall into this new narrative. And uh, he beat home messages like using restraint, not alienating locals, building up rather than tearing down. And the implication was not doing what the Army was doing in Iraq. And gentlemen, he wrote to his officers in late, late 2003, remember the Small Wars Manual that highlights such attributes as compassion and the provision of jobs being important to mission success. Uh, we must fight to gain Iraqi goodwill first by doing no harm to any innocent person, regardless of how the enemy tries to agitate distrust between us and the Iraqi people. In the three months that they had, he put his money where his mouth was. He instituted Arabic training. A uh, few people from every platoon got to go through intensive Arabic training for a month. Uh, they, they learned, they had cultural lessons, how not to offend Arab and Muslim sensibilities. Uh, they learned the treatment of prisoners according to the laws of war. They trained for a program that they resurrected from Vietnam called CAP, Combined Action Platoons, where Marines were trained in language and culture uh, and in training Iraqi troops, or at the time Vietnamese troops, and they went in and they lived in, vi in Vietnamese villages and fought and absorbed casualties and fought alongside uh, a Vietnamese unit and won the trust of the people. This is what they planned to do in, in Iraq, and they trained for it. They trained to counter roadside bombs uh, and they packed teddy bears, frisbees, candy bars, and all kinds of things to hand out to people uh, with the message that we're, we're here to help and not to hurt. Um, in, one, in one training session, I mean, you got to see how hard this was every single time we went out on the training, and I covered a lot of this training. There was one thing out at March Air Force Base in uh, abandoned military housing, which ended up looking a lot like Iraq, and it was this intensive urban training. But they would go through the, all these scenarios where there would be Iraqi on Iraqi violence, or somebody would come out of a house with an AK-47 but not necessarily uh, pointed at them, or somebody would do a drive-by and shoot at the troops, and the troops had to react to all these different scenarios. It was really heady stuff. And at this one incident, the Marines had done just what they were supposed to do every time, and then a Marine mowed down a bunch of civilians. The squad leader brought them all together, and he said, look, you know, it, it's all right. Uh, this was really, really tough, tough stuff. Um, you did what you had to do. And he said, no one is going to stop a Marine from protecting himself. So it's better to be judged by 12 than to be carried by 6. And it's a motto. And you think about that for 19-year-olds or for anybody. I mean, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty dire bottom line to work with and to go to war with. Uh, better to be judged by 12 than to be carried by 6. Uh, like I've explained, the Small Wars Manual, I had problems with that right off the bat. Uh, one, because it was contrived. I didn't believe it was a, a, a real tradition or part of their culture. It was part of their past, but not necessarily part of their culture. And also because these, these occupations, I had been a Latin Americanist before I became a journalist, and uh, I studied those occupations, and they, they were hardly places to look for examples of how Marines uh, won hearts and minds. Um, the Marines came home from these conflicts under a cloud. They were very sticky environments. Uh, 
in Haiti, the the insurgency there uh, rose in response to the or rose because of the presence of the Marines, the very presence, and then um, uh, grew because of the Marines' own methods. And Alan Millet, I think I'm pronouncing his, his name right, a former uh, scholar here at the Mershon Center. Um, he writes in his book, Semper Fidelis, about the Marine investigation by Smedley Butler and John Lejeune, two of the, the Small Wars heroes, when they went after some congressional hearings about Marine atrocities in Haiti. They went back and they, they looked at what was going on. They said, indeed, that, that, they, uh, that the, uh, a lot of the methods that were later <coughs> incorporated into the Small Wars manual were, were uh, 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 counterproductive. And, uh, and he said, and Millet writes that... Uh, they demythologized the Marine enlisted man when they were at a high point right after World War I. They said they did little to crush the war and much to create new guerrillas. Uh, Nicaragua, uh, asked me that in the, in the um, questions. I'm sure there's, there's faculty here that know more about it than I do. But uh, Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic weren't much better. Nicaragua, uh, the story of Sandino, it didn't, the Marines did not look well, and they, they, they created a folk hero, uh, an anti-American folk hero cr- across Latin America. Um, but the Marines got this manual as, uh, as a template. They, they reissued the manual to all the Marines. It had a lot of good ideas in it, but also without that context, I thought it was pretty dangerous. And a Marine lieutenant at one of the training in Yuma, Arizona, he, he pulls it out of his pack, and he said, a lot of this stuff has been written down. And he shows me this, this well-thumbed uh, copy of the Small Wars manual, and he says, uh, if you just exclude some of the mule train stuff, it's all here. Now it's just a matter of dusting it off and using it. And... Uh, I asked the, the, the Marine commander who was in charge of the, the Marines' entire training program, how am I doing on time, uh, what, um, about that contradiction. And he just sat down on some sandbags and he just said, uh, I've never really thought about that. Uh, I'm going to skip forward um, just because of time, but um, that was the narrative. That was, that was kind of the, the ideas behind it. In the, in the meantime, the Army was facing uh, a terrible time in Fallujah and Rawadi. From the time the army got there, shortly after the regime fell, uh, there had been just a string of mistakes. On April 28th in 2003, an army unit had taken over a school in Fallujah, and they were just kind of getting set up in the city, and the people came out to protest on Saddam's birthday. And one thing led to another. There were some shots fired somewhere from the crowd, about 200 people, and the soldiers opened up, uh, apparently to defend themselves, but they opened up on the crowd. Of about 200 people, 75 were wounded, 15 were killed started off on a bad foot. Tit-for-tat violence over the, the fall and winter uh, just made things worse. Three different Marine or Army units uh, tried different things from major sweeps to pulling back and letting the Iraqis handle security. Nothing seemed to work. The um, Army unit that the Marines were going to go replace uh, had been having prob- probably the worst time because the, the insurgency was these small, isolated bands were getting together. But the Marines, the, I can, you can look back and see how they interpreted the event uh, they, they, they decided at the same time not to armor any of their Humvees. They were going to go back without any up-armored Humvees at the same time that IEDs were becoming uh, the weapon of choice. They decided to take fewer of, fewer of their tanks. Uh, my analysis and a lot of other people's was that they were, they were still thinking like they, they had that experience in southern Iraq and they were, they were creating a force to go back in that. Uh, Army co- or Marine commanders publicly and in private criticized the Army's methods as heavy-handed, some of these heavy sweeps. And they blamed the Army for, for making uh, new insurgents and creating a situation that they were going to now have to take over. Um, and although the, the Marines had um, 
the, this public message of going back with a velvet glove, I, I sense some contradictions. And on the day Saddam was captured on December 13th, I called General James Mattis at home. And I talked to him about how it would affect the Marines' mission. And he, he told me all this same stuff. They're going to go back with uh, kind of an open palm, uh, kill who needs to be killed, but they're, they're, gonna, uh, help. they're there to help, not to hurt. And I kept badgering him on Fallujah. What are you going to do about Fallujah? All this terrible stuff was happening in Fallujah. And he finally got mad and, and a little bit uptight about my line of questioning. And he said, look, Darren, we took Iwo Jima. We can take goddamn Fallujah. And I filed that one away as plan B. Um, when the Marines uh, got to Iraq, uh, when they got to Kuwait, again, their training, you can see this mixed messages. I mean, in one square, like 20-meter area, I went and I saw Marines packing am ammunition crates full of teddy bears and Frisbees. And then right next to them, they were doing bayonet training, and a guy was teaching young Marines how to... Uh, kill a man while looking him in the eye. It was, it was really heady stuff. Um, but the, the message was still was, you know, uh, we can do this. The, the Marines, uh, the, the battalion commander, the executive commander of, of the battalion that was going to Fallujah said, uh, they need to know when to turn it on and turn it off. If one Marine pulls the trigger at the wrong time, it could have strategic implications. These Marines know by their actions that they are the face of America to all the Iraqis they meet. Uh, the division uh, foreign area officer, uh, the guy trained in, in Arabic, and he was going to be the city liaison to Fallujah, between the Marines and Fallujah, uh, said that the Marines would have to absorb early casualties, and they would just have to keep coming back to, to win over the Iraqis. He said, well, you can't just kill civilians and expect us to get it anywhere. Expect it to get us anywhere. The time for Rambo is over. Most of the rank and file, though, uh, really felt like some of that stuff, I mean, absorbing casualties, that was detrimental to their own welfare. And they hadn't had a lot of time to train on this, on this new Sasso stuff. Um, right before we, when we massed at the border to take the convoy to Fallujah, um, one of the, the company commanders uh, gave a pep talk to the Marines and gave them the, kind of the other side of the message. He jumped up on a truck and he's backlit by these Klieg lights and he jumps up and he says, we will march home on the corpses of our enemies. I know we won't be able to kill as many as our forefathers did on the battlefields of their wars, but I promise you we will kill our share. He went on about 9-11 and about the clash of civilizations and told them that they would soon prove what the army, that they could do what the army hadn't. Um, incidentally, the Marines from this, this particular company uh, were shown the Passion of the Christ, a private showing of the Passion of the Christ right before they went to Fallujah, and one of them described it to me as he felt like he was going on a crusade. Uh, that's just an anecdote, but you got to remember that this was the Marine Battalion direct responsibility for Fallujah. This was a third of the firepower of the guys who would be going into Fallujah. In uh, mid-March, the, the Marines are, arrived at, at Dreamland, the, the Army base there, uh, and I got to see their force kind of assemble and lay out the way it was supposed to work. And it was kind of like ordering something on a catalog and then putting the pieces together and seeing how everything worked. And we realized that, that they, they were structured, I mean, very much like a Marine Infantry Battalion uh, for combat. And that a lot of the uh, preparations for hearts and minds and whatnot were really kind of paper projects. Uh, the Arabic training, the guys who got to go to the Arabic training were kind of the brains of the operation. Uh, they were the, the, close to the colonel and whatnot. They, were, they had college degrees and whatnot. They ended up staying on the base, uh, answering the radios and making plans. 
And they weren't the ones actually going out, most of them, out into the city. And so it, they, they were kind of stuck uh, not being utilized. Uh, there were only a dozen civil affairs guys at the most for a thousand-man infantry battalion. Uh, and these were reservists. There were only 150 available at the time for 40,000 Marine uh, troop that was going, or the first 20,000 Marines who were going uh, back to Iraq. A uh, very small number of civil affairs uh, troops, I thought. Uh, and at the last minute, a group of 20 Marines were voluntold, volunteered, pulled off, uh, away from their normal duties to train an Iraqi police and military force <coughs> of 2,000 men. These guys, except for one, one uh, captain, had never done this before. And they worked really, really hard. And everybody worked really hard. But you could just see that they just didn't have the, the actual capabilities there uh, at the time. Uh, they, they later did. Um, 48 hours after the Marines arrived in Fallujah, they went out on a ride-along with the Army troops there, the 82nd Airborne. And they went to protect and uh, pull security around the mayor's compound for the monthly meeting of the, uh, they call it the FPAC, and it was the, the um, city council. And it was a, a project that the army had put together, and they just they they said by you know no matter what you have to preserve this you have to protect it. And the soldiers were tired of going because every time they went they got shot out. Well, as soon as the marines arrived, they get set up. The marines and soldiers they get nailed with mortars. They get attacked from three sides with small arms. Nineteen marines and soldiers on that very first day were wounded. Some of them had to be medevac to Baghdad. Uh, welcome to Fallujah. Uh, over their first 10 days, the Marines tried to learn what the Army had to teach. And at, at an official level, they did what they call right seat, left seat, where the Marines would ride passenger on Army missions and eventually learn to do it themselves and, and sit in the driver's seat. And the Marine would be there, in, or the soldier would be there as an advisor in the, in the passenger seat. Uh, it happened at an official level, and we went on several raids with them and everything. But... The Marines totally disproved of the Army's um, methods. And instead of that uh, narrative that the Army had been too tough in Fallujah that they carried with them to Iraq, the rank and file, the Marines, uh, openly and in a scrawl on the portajons and everything, believed that the Army had been uh, too weak and that they had let this problem fester and that the Marines would show them that they, that they, could, uh, that they could do it. And in, in a sense... They were right at the time. The, the army troops, I mean, it was kind of a lame duck force. These guys did not want to go back into Fallujah. So their patrolling had kind of uh, narrowed in, in scope at a time when the insurgency was really accelerating. Um, one of the soldiers kind of looked at the, I mean, the Marines didn't eat with the soldiers in the chow hall. They didn't talk to each other. They made fun of each other. And one of the soldiers kind of recognized the gulf between them. And he said, you come here with an idea of my, what might work. But when it's... <coughs> But then you find out it's different than what you thought. I think the Marines have to get out there and do it. We can tell them, but doing it is the only way to get the experience. Hopefully, they won't have to learn too much the hard way. In an interview I had with the, the, Marine, or the Army commander who was leaving, an exit interview, he just threw his arms up and he said, what did the Marine commander expect? You know, This is a totally violent place because the Marines seem shocked by the level of violence there. And he goes, what did he expect? And then he kind of sat back like he had just realized, hey, I'm leaving. And he said, I think the Marines will enjoy working in Fallujah. He said, but they'll be bloodied. Uh, less than two weeks after arriving in, Fallu in, in Fallujah, or in, in Anbar, the Marines officially took over the whole province from the 82nd Airborne. 
and a couple days later in Fallujah. At the official ceremony, General James Mattis shook hands with General Swanick, Chuck Swanick, who was the commander of the 82nd Airborne Force. And he thought he was out of range. They talked uh, publicly all these good things about e each other. And he thought he was out of range of reporters, but he went up and he shook, uh, shook Chuck Swanick's hand. And he said, uh, he said, I don't care what the press says. We're going to kill every one of those bastards. And I remembered kind of what I thought his plan be, which was, uh, uh, we took Iwo Jima. Uh, we can take goddamn Fallujah. That same day, General Conway, General James Conway, I recounted a story from a Marine who said, uh, God, this time I feel like we're the hunted, not the hunters. And Conway said, hey, wait, just wait a couple days and you'll see who feels like the hunted. And uh, I, I kind of gave, it was like a heads up, like something was coming. Um, two days later, on uh, March 25th, the uh, unit responsible, the Army unit responsible for Fallujah said goodbye to the Marine unit uh, that was incoming to take their place. They had a quick grip and grin ceremony. The Marines saluted, saluted as the uh, soldiers drove out of town. Immediately after the soldiers left, the Marines started saying, let's go do what the Army was afraid to do. And within 12 hours of the Army pulling out of that base, Dreamland, the Marines launched a massive sweep into Fallujah, into one of the toughest neighborhoods, <coughs> using tanks, armored vehicles, uh, 600 men about 400 of them actually on the ground in Fallujah, the rest pulling uh, perimeter. It, it was hardly what we expected from all the, the talk of hearts and minds. Uh, they did it because that the, the day that they said goodbye to the, the army, a special forces group had been inside on a raid, and as they were trying to get out, they were hit with an IED, and a Delta Force soldier was, was uh, critically wounded. Later that day, the same day that the Army was leaving Fallujah, a Marine convoy was hit right outside of town and a Marine was killed. The vehicle was left burning. They couldn't recover it because of small arms fire and Al Jazeera got pictures of it. And it was really humiliating to the Marines. So they went in big the next day. It was Friday. It was a day of prayer in Fallujah. Really important day. They blocked off traffic to the town, created this huge traffic jam. Um, and it was also a couple days after Ahmad Yassin the Hamas founder had been killed in Israel. And the intelligence reports were that the city was really inflamed by this. And they were uh, blaming the Americans. And when we went in, we saw it for ourselves that the mosques were covered with literature about Yassin and the pictures of it. And there were rallies planned for that day. And that was the message that was going to come from the mosque all day long. Uh, in this, in this sweep they did of Fallujah, uh, Hain and I accompanied them, ran through the streets. We were shot at from the very beginning all day long. There were firefights. There were five IEDs that went off against the Marines. There were a car bomb went off. A van exploded. The, uh, the insurgents used mortars, RPGs. We saw a, a Marine sniper kill. It was probably a an insurgent directing a fight. But we watched the neighborhood just get inflamed over it. And uh, as they took the guy into the mosque, the body into the mosque, the mosque started chanting, you know, get the Americans, and the whole neighborhood just kind of went up, literally chased us to the edge of town, where we ended up surrounded in a house. Um, at least five and as many as 20 Iraqi civilians were killed that day. The Marines killed an ABC cameraman uh, on accident, thinking him to be an insurgent. When we were surrounded in that house, getting fired on, and, and uh, they were walking mortars in on us, 
uh, a Marine unit came and a squad or a platoon came and did a blocking position in the intersection so that we could literally run out of town. And in a vo final volley of fire right before they were out, a, a young Marine was killed. Um, when I got back to the base that night, this was, this was the Marines' debut op operation in Fallujah. The public affairs officers, with all the, the press that they were getting right then, they just said it was a complete nightmare. The, the whole uh, do no harm campaign just kind of was, was a wash at that point. Um, but that wasn't, it didn't just end there. They had no chance to, to kind of recover. The Marines held the Cloverleaf, which is an intersection at the entrance of town, and they battled it out for the next few days. This was March 26th. Battled it out for the next few days. The special forces troops there, which the, the people of Fallujah couldn't distinguish from the Marines, because it was all, the Marines were in charge now, used Spectre gunships, which is one of the most uh, terrible weapons of our, of our arsenal, one of the most effective. It was what was just used in Somalia to, uh, to get the, uh, the guy there. Um, but the, the intelligence report said that the, the town was just enraged, uh, stirred up, and they expected more violence. On March 31st, it was the fifth day of that, of that conflict. Things had calmed down in the morning. Most of the fighting took place at night. The Marines still held the cloverleaf, blocking the bypass highway uh, to leave Fallujah. And in doing so, traffic was directed into Fallujah. And in two of those cars were four American security contractors that went through that morning. And uh, you know what happened to them. Ambushed, killed, burned, mutilated, dragged, hung, and their images broadcast across the globe. It was seen as a tipping point. But I believe the Marines had reached the point of about a week before, a tripping point. Um, the Marine commander, recognizing what this was, uh, he, he warned his men as soon as the Marines were ordered to go in. This is General Mattis. We are convinced that this was a spontaneous mob action, he wrote his officers the next day. We must avoid the temptation to strike out in retaliation. The insurgents did not plan this crime. It dropped into their lap. We should not fall victim to their hopes for a vengeful, vengeful response. To react to this provocation, as heinous as it is, will likely negate the efforts of the 82nd Airborne, paid for in blood, and complicate our own campaign, which, is not yet, which we have not yet been given the opportunity to implement. Counterinsurgency forces have learned many times in the past that the desire to demonstrate force and resolve has long-term and generally negative implications and destabilize rather than stabilize the environment. Uh, despite the Marines' protestations or, or advice against it, they were ordered to take the cordon. Uh, Mattis wrote again, There are over 250,000 inhabitants in the city, the vast majority of whom have no particular love for the coalition, but are also not insurgents. From a moral, ethical, legal, and military perspective, we will fight smart. We do not have to be loved at the end of the day. This is a goal that no longer, is no longer achievable in Fallujah, but we must avoid turning more young men into terrorists. We will also avoid doing what the insurgents, terrorists, foreign fighters, and the Arab street all expect, and that is the thoughtless application of force as if to strike out in retribution for the murders. His caution, however, uh, wasn't uh, reflected in a, in a lot of the troops. Uh, the XO, the second in charge of the battalion that was going to go into Fallujah, uh, he said, uh, Bill O'Reilly is saying we should, make the people, we should make the people of Fallujah bathe in our own blood. And he threw his, his arms up like, what could he do now? Bill O'Reilly saying this. Uh, Another company commander is going to lead 200 men into Fallujah. He said, uh, you, don't, you just don't do that to Americans. And he said, Islam is the most ignorant religion in the world. These people want to live in the 14th century, but we're going to drag them kicking and screaming into the 21st. Um, 
the operation that was called Operation Vigilant Resolve, as I said, spun quickly beyond what the Marines had wanted to do. They were going to cordon and, and go in and, and do these surgical strikes. Marines were killed right off the bat. Uh, the Marines had to take over the first few blocks of homes, and it became this pitched urban battle. Uh, in the words of one of the Marine commanders, they were sucked in or tripped in. Once inside, violence escalated. The Marines used the only real tool in their box at the time, which was the hammer. Tanks, airstrikes, helicopter gunships, specter gunships, mortars, artillery, white phosphorus bombs, snipers, machine guns. The entire range of Marine firepower was brought to bear on a city still full of, of hundreds of thousands of civilians. The original two infantry battalions were reinforced by two more, and then another two in outlying areas. At this point, this is conventional war, the second in charge told me. We had all the Sasso training back at home, said one of the troops, and this turns into a, got, a real goddamn war. And you have to understand the city was still full of civilians, and the Marines were amazed that they were firing the kind of weaponry they were uh, in that environment because they had heard they had brought teddy bears, for God's sake. Um, so much for hearts and minds, one of the officers yells, a 500-pound bomb hit a neighborhood. Uh, after firing high-explosive mortars into the city, Marines shook their heads in amazement at the, es at the escalation. And one of them turned to me and he said, I just don't want to come home and have someone call me a baby killer. That would really piss me off. And the battalion chaplain, who's kind of the insider of all insiders, uh, told me this as we rode out to uh, cover the fighting. And he said, no better friend, no worse enemy. Um, well, they were never that comfortable with the no better friend part, he said. They seem pretty ready to be no worse enemy. That's what they're trained for. That's what they do. The friendly posters never went up on the walls. The candies and teddy bears stayed at the base, and the Marines called home for more tanks. The violence coincided with a Shiite uprising in the south um, against Muqtada al-Sadr. Um, let's see. And the fighting also spread into other Sunni cities, especially Ramadi. Uh, Shiites aided Sunnis. Sunnis aided Shiites. And for the first time, the possibility of a general uprising was there. It's, it's never existed since, but uh, a joint... Shiite-Sunni uprising, and, and it was one of the scariest times for the coalition. The level of violence that month, it remains the second deadliest month, 136 troops were killed. Uh, it shocked many observers around the world. It shattered the illusion that U.S. forces only faced a few bad apples in Iraq, as the leaders in Washington had just been saying. It was a sort of headline-grabbing, casualty-producing, full-scale urban, urban combat that they most feared during the invasion. It was a tipping point became a rallying cry for insurgents all over Iraq and unleashed a resurgence of major military operations which has been on the table ever since, a new phase in the war. Uh, in summary, the Marines returned to Iraq in early 2004 planning, for a fight to small, planning to fight a small war, promising to use more restraint than the U.S. Army forces who had been trying to pacify Fallujah for nearly a year. The insurgency proved more, inf more formidable than they had anticipated, however, and early Marine casualties led them almost immediately to drop those plans and to fight along conventional lines. No longer citing the Army for being too tough on Fallujah, Marines instead blamed the Army for letting a problem fester and for leaving it to them to take care of. The Marines' debut action in Fallujah, a major sweep into one of the toughest neighborhoods just hours after they replaced the Army troops, kicked off a week of fighting that culminated in a spectacular event, the slaying of four American contractors in the city, which removed almost all restraints on the use of force. Their, their will and capacity to fight a small war at the time was only skin deep, a paper plan, good intentions at the top levels, that were not backed up by either the conditions on the ground or the force they arrived with or the prevailing attitude or experience of the men who would be calling the shots and pulling the triggers. Uh, if you have a weak or unsupportable or inappropriate plan A, then plan B is all you really ever had. And plan B for the Marines in early 2004 was taking Fallujah by force. We took Iwo Jima, the general had said, we can take goddamn Fallujah. 
When the realities of Iraq in 2004 dissolved Plan A and political considerations restrained them from completing Plan B, the Marines reluctantly withdrew and, in effect, turned the city over to the insurgency. Bolstered by that apparent victory and fueled by the Abu Ghraib scandal, the insurgency peaked then that summer following the siege of Fallujah until the Marines were, in their words, forced to finish the job in November. That no-holds-barred conventional campaign of annihilation uh, uh, was fought without any of the restraints that characterize counterinsurgency. The fight had negative strategic consequences and continued to be a ri- reason why people resisted the American presence in Iraq. Um, proving the Marine commander's warning at the outset that counterinsurgency forces have learned many times in the past that the desire to demonstrate force and resolve has long-term and generally negative implications and to stabilize rather than stabilize the environment. While the Marines made dramatic progress in learning counterinsurgency or relearning counterinsurgency and systematically retooling their force and teaching it to their troops, in early 2004, they, like the Army, had to learn it the hard way. That's it. Thank you. Okay. Yes, sir. Well... Three-star General David Petraeus on his way to Iraq. He's going to have maybe 20,000 more troops on the ground in one capacity or another. Commanded the 101st Airborne Division in Iraq earlier in the war. Some would argue there's no one more aggressive, no one more capable. He helped train Iraqi forces in another point of the war. And yet, it seems that even an additional 20,000 on top of maybe 150,000 in the country right now will not reach critical mass in terms of the stage of where this is. And with his stated objective being to take down some of the militia groups, uh, particularly the Medi Army, under Muqtada al-Sadr, in Sadr City, where the 1st Cavalry Division uh, thought they were lucky that they could just drive through the neighborhood when they were there. Uh, What's your take on that? Um, Well, it's it's really hard to say that because the Monty Militia has been... um, Allowed basically to to create its its infrastructure, and the fact that it knows that this is coming. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't know that um, I don't know that it'll be anything decisive because they have the time to to get out to restructure uh, what they're doing, and they can clear. Well, I mean, Sadr City is huge. Sadr City. I keep calling it Saddam City because that's what I was used to at the time. But but Sadr City is huge. And 20,000 soldiers, I mean, they're not going to have that whole force for that. But they could literally occupy that, the street, and the insurgents could not fight. Then what? They've created a situation like they have in Fallujah where they have to hold it uh, forever, perhaps. So uh, it's, it's really unclear what, what that will achieve. They tried that major push into Baghdad and, and extended forces and and brought a whole bunch of uh, troops along with Iraqi troops into Baghdad to kind of flood the cities, and it, did, it didn't do anything then. Um, I don't know. If there's a, defi- a decisive battle against the Mahdi army, uh, they tend to kind of uh, run and fight another day. So it might have, uh, you know, six months where, where coalition forces can turn to other things, uh, uh, strengthening the Iraqi forces and do that. So it might have that effect. Uh, but it also provides a whole lot more targets, uh, the insurgents know that, know that this is coming. They're, they're on a recruiting drive, a conscription drive, all over the, the country, raising an army for this. So it's, you know, I, I don't know what it'll do. Uh, it, it's going to be exciting to see. Like, I haven't been there since 2005, and I've been following it 
like everybody else has through the media and through my marine connections in, in uh, Iraq. And that's mostly in Al-Anbar province. And they've got a very different take on Al-Anbar. They've created a situation where they've got a very soft put footprint. They're not going in in these big operations anymore. They've pulled back and are have kind of divide and conquer strategy, and they're allowing the uh, the Sunni tribes to basically fight Al Qaeda, who they realize didn't have their best interests in mind. And the Marines are supporting that, but leaving a very small footprint in the area. A big, huge footprint might do what I was saying in 2004. It did. It might crystallize the insurgency. It might spread the insurgency. I don't know. Uh, Petraeus is a very, very capable guy, and and now all the Marines point to him as uh, one of the best leaders with the best plan in Iraq. So um, I don't know, maybe it'll do some good. It'll, it'll be interesting to watch. I, I may, be, may be going back uh, soon to, to cover the, that surge and, and see what it does. I've been to Baghdad in four years now, so that, that ought to be interesting. Yes, sir. Can you say a little bit more about um, who allowed uh, the showing of the Passion of the Christ, how that was allowed to happen? <laughs> The the showing in that instance of Passion of the Christ, and I can't say anything for a larger Marine Corps, but that unit that happened to go into Fallujah is, is pretty significant, I thought. Yeah. One, because it was uh, their company commander and the first sergeant at the time, which basically set the tone for a Marine company of 200 guys pulling the trigger, deciding who's going to live and who's going to die. When the Marines themselves are saying that they felt like they were on a campaign, and then they go into a situation like Fallujah where, or the, on, a, on a crusade, and uh, they go into a city like Fallujah where their enemy is certainly on a, a religious war, you know, a state of jihad, um, it's pretty significant. And, and while I think... Uh, was the company commander particularly religious? Yeah, very religious, and the first sergeant was, and he, they showed him this as, as uh, kind of a, a going-away party almost. But here's the other thing. Members of that same company were shown that video hours before they went into attack Fallujah. They stayed up late at night and watched a bootleg copy just to kind of do what the jihadists did and, and get... Yes, sir? I was in here at the same period of time. Wasn't the Passion of Christ also being shown at it was. It had just come out, and it was a super. Po I saw it right before so, so I left. Basically, the company commander may have been showing that so that his troops got a chance to, because we were not allowed to go in town to watch that for fear that our presence at that movie would be a problem. Right. So it might not be that he was super religious. It might be that he wanted his troops to get a chance to see that movie. It was being shown on commercial theaters throughout the Middle East. And I saw it uh, just like days before I left because I was very interested in going to see it, but. If I, I, I didn't mention that in my reports at the time because I did see it as something small. I find it now an interesting point because Marines have told me that they felt like they were on a crusade and when their, their company commander has made certain statements about 9-11 and about uh, the reasons why they were in Iraq and why we fight and stuff like that, I, for my book it's significant enough to talk about. Uh, I definitely don't want to hang that on all Marines. I don't think all Marines... Uh, feel that way. They're very, the Marines are extremely clear about their mission and they believe in their mission and, and they go back three or four times and, and uh, you know, I haven't seen morale break, but that particular company, and I think it's significant because they did go fight in Fallujah, they did have a heavy uh, religious influence at the time, enough where it bothered a couple of the troops. You know, I felt like we were on a crusade. So. Anybody else? Yes, sir. 
you pointed out several times the disconnect between this high-ranking emphasis on hearts and minds and soft power versus the PFC on the ground who wants to put the notch in his K-bar. We grabbed one of the PFCs out of those photographs behind you and said, what's our mission in Iraq right now? What would he tell you? And if you grabbed the battalion XO, what would he tell you? <laughs> that, and there's always a difference there. This is why this is why I think Marines always believe in their mission. They're, they're told something from the top, but and any Marine commander will tell you this. And Bing West said it very well in, in the beginning. I, I used that quote from him. Marines fight for each other. Okay? A Marine signs up. He's going to do what his commander said. He's going to follow orders. It's what Marines do. It's what Marines do best. They fight for the guy on their left and the guy on their right. What you have in Iraq, and especially now in Anbar, is a situation of force protection. Okay? Almost every swing in M16 is, is used to protect every other swing in M16. And especially in Fallujah at the time, what, what we had was a situation where a Marine patrol would go out, and these guys would risk their lives, and they would go out on a patrol on the roads around Fallujah to look for IEDs, risking themselves uh, uh, to find IEDs, the uh, roadside bombs, and to find people planning them, and to flush out the insurgents, uh, move to movement to contact drills. So that the next Marine patrol out of, out of the wire uh, was safe when it went looking for IEDs and flushing out insurgents. And it was this kind of circular force protection. And that's what they do. And, and they believe in their mission at that point because if they go out and successfully accomplish their mission that day, they've just saved their buddy's life. And in turn, their buddy is doing that uh, for them when they go out. So to ask a PFC his mission, that's his mission usually. And since 2004, they've had time to really... Uh, grow a culture of, of counterinsurgency and and go back and absorb casualties over and over again and and work with locals and learn the language and they've come a long way since then so this characterization was really uh, then in 2004 when they went back but it fomented a lot of stuff but the Marines have learned a lot since but if you if you asked a Marine commander what the mission is it's going to be kind of that highfalutin stuff you ask a PFC and he's going to be save Dave <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Yes, John. Was there a way that Fallujah could have, the Battle of Fallujah could have been fought right? I don't know. And I, 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 I love that question because uh, it was so bad. And I don't know if there's anything else that could have happened. Uh, I don't know that by not going in to try to take the city at the time, uh, I don't know that they would have not gotten necessarily some version of what they ended up with in the summer of 2004. But if you read the Marine, if you look at the, the insurgent propaganda, the evolution of it, there's been a couple studies done. If you read uh, insurgent literature, there's a couple uh, testimonials that, that guys left behind, uh, like kind of diaries almost, of the insurgency. That first battle and the violence there, people, it was a rallying point. People came from all over Iraq. People came from all over the Middle East and the world, Yemen and, and stuff, to, to fight there. It was the place to fight the Americans. So it it fomented this, this, it crystallized the insurgency in that place. So I don't know that that would have happened to that extent, but the, the torture and Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, he was already there. Uh, you know, a lot of the elements were there, so maybe that would have taken a year if the Marines would have just sat on the outside and done their original plan. Maybe that would have taken longer, but maybe they would never have had to experience that violence that brought everything into focus, and maybe they would not have had to... Uh, 
to take Fallujah in November. And it's kind of ironic. Uh, Fallujah, I mean, I, I haven't really talked to anybody who, who uh, you look at Fallujah, the second battle, and it's just success after success after success tactically. It was just amazing. They're going to study that, that uh, conflict forever. It was the most decisive battle of the war. Uh, but you back up and you look at how that's viewed, and it's still generating scandals. And it, it was seen as an example of what America would do. And it's viewed in Europe, it's viewed in the Arab world as a really uh, a savage event. The, the Marines didn't let media in there for a long time afterwards as they were trying to rebuild it. It was going to be a success story. It wasn't really a success story until now. The security situation has gotten so bad that Fallujah, because it's protected by American forces and Iraqi forces, uh, it's become a safe haven. It's become a... Uh, um, a refugee camp for Sunnis who've been ethnically cleansed out of their neighborhoods in Baghdad. And it's experienced this kind of resurgence in popularity uh, and is now being held up again as a success story. And the Sunnis right now in Fallujah don't have many reasons to uh, take cracks at U.S. troops in Fallujah uh, because it's a pretty darn safe place when when they look at where they just came from in in, uh, other places in Al-Anbar and and Baghdad. Um, So I... I don't know how it would have went otherwise. That's it would have gone otherwise. It's a you know, uh, the army has an idea of how it would have, how they would have done it. The marines have their idea, but it happened the way it happened. Sorry. I'm going to bring it to a formal close. I want to thank you very much, Darren. Okay. Thank you. And I want to thank Darren. Thank you. Darren is a He's going to stay for another several months here at Mershon. So uh, I invite you all to talk to him casually. Also, before I sit down, I want to introduce uh, Tarak Barkawi while I have the chance. He's a postdoc, just arrived last week from Cambridge University, and he'll be here for the rest of the year also, and we'll hear from Tarak uh, before too long. But uh, Darren, thanks a lot, and thanks a lot for agreeing to stay. We want a lot more of your information as the quarter drears on. Uh, Next Tuesday, we have another event. I hope some of you can join us. Thank you all very much.